Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, even if they don't. Coming into you today with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Today is episode 643 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Thursday, and uh, it's also April 14th, 2011, which means it's one more day before the deadline to file your taxes and pay Uncle Scam his due from last year if you owe him anything, or to beg for your money back if he owes you anything. Uh, today we're going to you know, kind of fit into that financial world. We're going to talk about modern financial survival. I'm going to tell you right now, I know I have a lot of people that listen to the show that are in the financial advisory business, and some of the things that I say today are going to piss you off. Too bad, I'm going to tell people the truth. I'm going to tell people the reality today, like I've done in the past, and today in a little bit different of a way. We're going to end up in the same results is what I think you should do for the future, but uh, I'm going to give them a little more history on how the hell we got to a point where financial advisors are actually relationship salespeople. Now look, folks, I know some of you guys out there have good financial advisors. I know some of you advisors are good advisors, but if you didn't have your people moving into somewhat of a cash position in 2007 or 2008, you suck. Let me say it again. If you're a financial advisor and you didn't have your people moving to some level of a cash position in 2007, late 2007 through mid-2008, if you weren't putting them into some level of kind of cash reserves or some other level of safe form of investment, you shouldn't be a financial advisor. You are a financial retard. You couldn't see the biggest market crash in history coming. You couldn't see the biggest market crash in history coming with the longest telegraphed punch of any crash that's ever occurred, ever. You couldn't see something coming that even a dummy like me could see coming. So what business do you have telling people to invest in anything? All right. If that's what you want to hear today, if you want to hear more on this, stay tuned. That's the kind of show we're going to have today. It's not going to be all edgy and angry, Jack, but I'm going to tell you some realities about investing. I'm going to tell you where a lot of your money actually went to, why it went there, and, and why most of what's been told to you your entire life about saving for your future and saving for retirement is pretty much bullshit. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today is Emergency Essentials. You'll find them at BePrepared.com. Emergency Essentials is awesome. They have a great catalog. Make sure you subscribe to get that catalog. And they also provide just about everything you could need for your prepping. But what they really seem to be known for most is their long-term storage food option. They carry just about every manufacturer of long-term storage food. They have great pricing and awesome selection and great shipping. Check out BePrepared.com today. Again, that's Emergency Essentials. And when you're there, check out their informational resources. They have a tremendous amount of information and resources available on their website. Uh, next up today, Western Botanicals. When I need something, you know, for uh, like right now, I'm dealing with a little bit of allergy, so I'll probably pause and go and uh, grab uh, Dr. Kyle Christensen's allergy formula. But when I need something and I don't want to rely on drugs and medication, I rely on, on products from Western Botanicals. If it's an herb, either a whole herb or an herbal preparation, and uh, you're looking for it, you'll find it there. And everything you're going to get there has either been wild crafted or organically grown. You're going to get it put together the right way by people that know what they're doing, that have been doing it the right way for a very long time. So check out Western Botanicals today. And remember this, folks. If you, uh, 
If you are a member of our member support brigade and you make a phone call to Western Botanicals and give them a code that's in your MSB uh, back office, which is the member support brigade uh, that we use to support the show, they will set you up with a free premium account. That account costs most people $50 a year. You'll get it for free as part of our support brigade, and you get 25% off every single thing that they sell. I also want to remind you today to uh, connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Those are great ways to stay in touch with us and stay in touch with me in particular. Uh, and last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade because if you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members and you'll get something we're going to spend a lot of time talking about today. That's a return of your investment. See, isn't it great when you spend money with a company and that, that, that money spent is actually profit yielding? That's how I set up the Member Support Brigade to be. If you buy stuff... For prepping, if you buy long-term food storage, if you buy seeds for your garden, if you if you do any of the stuff that we talk about, if you buy silver coins, if you buy books on long on on, uh, on survival, prepping, and and other things related to what we talk about, if you do any of this stuff, there are ways to save money with the support brigade. That's how I set it up. So while you're supporting the show at about twenty cents an episode, which I think the show's worth, or I wouldn't get up and do it every day, and you probably wouldn't listen to it every day if you didn't think that. You're going to get more than 100% return of your investment every year. That's why you should consider joining the Member Support Brigade today if you have not already done so. Great. So since we're talking about investing, let's get into this. Um, you know, here's the thing that just strikes me as odd. If I take the time out of my day once in a while, now that I work from home all the time, and uh, turn the TV on, and I, I start watching, you know, either a business news channel or a normal news channel or any of the daytime television stuff, just about any day of the week, they're going to roll out one of the financial gurus, one of the investment advisors that we all know. Useless idiots like Jim Cramer, like Susie Orman, and, and just countless other ones. And, you know, Cramer, I'm going to give Cramer actually a little more credit for having an IQ higher than people like Orman's that don't speak just to the consumer market. Because Cramer, is, is as much as it is easy to jump on Cramer, his whole shtick, folks, one thing you understand about him is the, the advice he's giving you is for your high-risk capital. You know, I mean, it really is. That's what mad money is all about. It's not, it's not the money you're saving for when you're 65 to walk down the beach or 75 to walk down the beach. It's, it's the portion of your, your portfolio that you broke out and you're going to use to try to do some really high-risk, high-yield potential investments. Uh, still an idiot, but uh, one of the, the smarter idiots, honestly, out there. But people like Orman, and I'm going to prove to you today what an idiot she is. I'm just going to read her own words and let them uh, let them sentence her. Um, and all of these other people, I mean, what, what strikes me is how similar the advice all of these people end up giving. Every person they roll out onto these shows basically says, put your money in the stock market. Now, there's a million different ways they get there. You know, like, well, there's this type of fund, and there's a growth fund, and there's a, an income fund, and, you know, if you do your analysis, and, and all of the people they send out to your workplaces, these people that are like, uh, you know, the, the, from an, a company like, and I don't want to put down any individual names, but like an Edward Jones or an Ameriprise or, or any of these larger uh, fi franchise type companies where they have the individual that owns his own little office, but he's under an umbrella of the company. American Express would be another one. You know, put, eventually it all comes down to put your money in the stock market. Even if you're putting it in bond funds, you're putting it into the same type of a paper asset. It's just a bond, uh, which is a loan to somebody versus the stock, which is ownership in a company, which is in another roundabout way, kind of a loan to a company or a municipality or what have you. So put your money in the market. 
Um, the next one is, it, we, we are really told heavily by all these people that the way to do this is to put as much money as we can into def tax-deferred accounts. 401ks, IRAs, lock it up, keep the tax man away from it. How could that be bad advice? Well, we'll get to that. But just... Let's like establish now that these people basically all tell you the same thing. The the third thing is that debt is okay, uh, with one exception. Who has you know terrible financial advice as far as investing because his not because he's wrong, but because his advice is everybody's advice is Dave Ramsey. At least Dave says stay the hell out of debt. All debt is bad. Get out of it. But other than that. He falls in with everybody else, and most of them say that's okay. Susie Orman, well, cut up your credit cards, but keep one for emergencies. Idiot. How many credit cards do you need to end up $20,000 in debt? I mean, seriously. Um, credit cards are, are just an awful thing. Uh, student loans have become an awful thing. Debt is not okay. Uh, debt is a tool. It, it can be used in intelligent ways. But it generally is not. And to give people any kind of advice that would infer that, in general, debt can be treated with anything other than the same level of caution you would treat handling a viper with is just irresponsible and wrong. And I'm sorry if that offends anybody, but it's the truth. So debt is okay is generally part of it. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of strategies about um, working with your, with your, uh, you know, taking loans from your own retirement accounts that are brought. I mean, you don't hear it now because banks aren't handing them out like free crack anymore. But uh, up until that, this whole financial crisis occurred, there was all kinds of strategies built around using home equity loans. Uh, and increasing your debt that way. And there were so many things. I mean, I had a, a personal financial advisor. They said, look, Drew, I want to take some money, and I want to buy a house. And he said, okay, well, where do you want to take the money from? I said, from some of my investments. And he said, investments that you have with me. I said, at the, And I said at the time, well, Drew, my cash investments are all with you. He said, but, you know, you're going to liquidate a, 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 a good investment to do this. I said, Drew, I'm going to liquidate a good investment to purchase another good investment, and I, one that I think is, you know, remarkably more stable for the long-term real estate over one that's less stable, which is basically stock, a stock market investment. And um, I had to just say, shut up and, and 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 execute the trade for me and get me my money. But his his counter proposal, what he had proposed that I do uh, instead of sell some of my own stock for the down payment on a new piece of property that I was going to buy, was, well, you already own a home. Yeah, I already own a home. Well, why don't you take a home equity loan out on the first home and use that to buy the second home with? To which I promptly told him to shut up and make the trade. The other thing he was upset about is that we had looked at all the funds that we were holding, and we had some funds that had lost money. And I said, I want you to sell and get me my $10,000 out as much as you can out of the funds that have lost money. And he said, why would you want to do that? What do you mean, why would I want to do that? He says, because, well, you know, you want to hold that one until it comes back. Well, these other ones are profitable. You know, maybe you could go ahead and harvest the profit out of one of those. So, Drew, would you tell me to buy that fund today? Right now, if I had $10,000 in cash sitting here, and he said, no. I said, then why the hell would I keep it? Which didn't seem to make anything, any sense, so I had to say, once again, execute the trade. But my reasoning for doing that, and one that just didn't make any sense to him, because, well, he's a financial advisor trained by a system that I'm going to explain to you in a second, was one, that debt is okay, and, and that two, he didn't understand the bigger picture, which was if I sold something at a loss, I got a capital loss that year, and I was able to deduct it from my taxes, and that made the money cheaper, and the loss was already there. 
And my overall investments that I was pulling this money from went down by the same number as if I had sold a profitable investment, had to declare a capital gains profit, and pay capital gains taxes, which at the time were higher than they are today as well. Um, so just the big thing with that story, though, is they all think the same. Debt in some form is okay. Stay away from risky investments like gold and silver. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people on the TV say that. I mean, other than the people that are saying, buy gold, buy gold, buy gold, buy gold, buy only gold, right? Those people that are there to, on advertisements who sell you gold, most of these people think that gold is risky. Does it matter? Does it matter how well gold has performed uh, for 30 years? Does it matter? All that matters is, well, it doesn't produce dividends and sometimes it goes down, which is like a lot of stocks. Right, um, but gold and gold and silver I see as financial insurance, and then this is the big one. The overriding message from all these people is that you cannot time the markets. It's impossible. No one can do it. You have to be freaking Warren Buffett, and even he gets it wrong sometimes. Timing markets is ridiculous. I'm going to leave that one for a bit because I'm going to use it to prove how stupid these people actually are. So that maybe you'll start to think for yourself. Because I don't want you to end the show and go out and start doing things that Jack Spierko said to do. I want you, when this show is over, to start thinking, I'm going to take control of my own financial future. And I'm going to become informed. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do things on autopilot. And my only savings are not going to be a little savings account in the bank and a 401k or an IRA or what have you. I'm going to take more control over this, have greater visibility into this, and make more choices for myself. But that's the, that's the big overriding message. There's no way to time the markets. Nobody can do it. It's, it's impossible. Please remember that. All right, so what I want to start out with, though, on, on this note is how do we get here? How do we get to a point where all of these people can come out and basically say the same thing, and yet it's all spun as something different, and the vast majority of Americans believe it, they act on it, and they're in this system? How, how did we get to a place where most Americans take some portion of their income every month or take, you know, basically we have two types of people in, in the United States today, two primary groups. One group takes some portion of their money every single month or every single week or whatever pay frequency they have deductions done at, and they put it into this system that's basically a generic system where we can say one thing's growth in income, we can say one thing is, is, is a more long-term investment portfolio, one's higher risk for a younger person, but basically it's all the same. And we have people that save nothing because they have nothing to save. And that, those are the two primary groups. And a very small segment of society actually is informed and understands what's going on in their investments and thinks outside the box to a point where they understand that there are plenty of things in their life that they need to look at as investments that most financial advisors wouldn't even consider an investment. How do we get there? Well, the way we got there with people that save nothing is we have a segment of society that makes so little they have nothing to save. And then we have the, the major segment of society of the middle class, the upper middle class, even the lower middle class, that they go to work every day, they do their job, and they have some sort of automatic system putting their money into uh, some sort of, of savings. And that savings looks dramatically similar for a 45-year-old and a 25-year-old. The 45-year-old probably is making more money on average and contributing more money on average. But if you actually sat down and picked apart what they're holding, it would look remarkably similar. The 55-year-old's account looks remarkably similar. Criminally, the 60-year-old's account often looks remarkably similar. It will be a 
portfolio based on a, a group of stocks. Some of those stocks will be the dividend blue chips. Some of them will be more of a growth in income. There'll be some mid-cap, some small-cap, and uh, maybe a little bit, maybe 2-3% in cash. And if they're older and their financial advisor is paying attention at all, maybe a little bit of fixed income bond action going on. But pretty much, pretty much, that's what everybody has. And pretty much everybody only looks at one number, the one at the bottom of the statement every quarter. What's it worth now? And pretty much nobody really knows how well they're doing because since you're putting money in every month, you could have a situation where you didn't make any money and after 15 years of doing this with no thought to it at all and just watching the balance, the balance goes up because you're contributing $600, $700 a month to savings at this point and later in your career when you can afford to do that and it looks like it went up. You know, it's, it's a couple thousand more, it's not a lot more, but it went up. Well, it went up because you funded the loss. Or you actually funded the flat. Conversely, it could go down and you could fund the loss. And it's like, ah, I didn't really lose any money this time or make any money this time. I'm still in pretty decent shape. And this is the insanity that most of America is living in today with their investments. So how did we get here? Well, we got here a long, long time ago. A bunch of people got together and decided that, you know, it wasn't fair that the average person really couldn't play in the market. So they started putting together the very first things that we would call a mutual fund. And basically what they said is what we'll do is we'll take a whole bunch of stocks and we'll put them together. And then a person can buy a share in the fund and have, you know, holdings in all of these stocks. And we'll, we'll, we'll get in, in, you know, experts to pick the stocks that we'll put it together, and they start saying, well, we can get creative with this. We can have a fund that's just the top 10 uh, blue chip stocks out there. We can have one that's an index matching fund, which is all the stocks or all the large stocks in a particular index, one designed to track the index. We can have an oil sector fund, so we can get, you know, Exxon and Texaco and what have you, put that together. And all of a sudden they started to realize that this, this new concept was something that they could package millions and millions of ways. In fact, today... There's more mutual funds than there are individual stocks that the mutual funds hold. So we got to this point, and as we're doing this, people started saying as they put these funds together, wow, you know, if we get just a, a relatively few thousand investors into one fund, wow, we can put a lot of money under control. And if we're charging a management fee for that, when you charge a little piece of a huge number, that's a big number that comes out of the bottom. This is a great business idea. So all of these different companies that got into the business of marketing funds came up with a system. And that system was you go out and you find people that are relatively competent salespeople. You give them a moderate amount of a financial education. What you really train them in is relationship building. You give them a very specific worksheet formula to sit down and ask people questions. And pretty much everybody comes up with the same answer at the end of that sheet. You need to save money. You're not saving enough money. You need to save more money. You need to invest your money. You need to take risk with your money so that you can beat inflation. Put your money into the market this way. And here's a pie chart to make it look official. And that pie chart might look slightly different for me or for you. 
And I might have 40% in a one class of, of investment, and you might have 20% in that class. And then I might have it exact opposite with you, and I might have it heavier in growth and income, and you might have it heavier in small to mid cap. But when we really look at it, where we both end up is 95% or more of our money invested in stocks through a vehicle called a mutual fund, sold to us by a person that doesn't have any idea what he's really doing. And I'm, I'm sorry, again, I know I'm pissing financial advisors off today, but most of them don't have any idea what they're doing. They're complete idiots. They're the same people I had conversations. I was looking for a new one uh, back in the summer of 08 when I was telling you the same thing, get your money out of the market. I was looking for somebody that could help me go into something relatively safe uh, without just going to straight cash. And everybody I talked to wanted to sit down, talk to me about my hopes and dreams, fill out a worksheet, and tell me to stay in the market. And I would tell them on the phone, look, we're not going to sit down and talk about my hopes and dreams. We're not going to talk about my goals for 65. My goal in the next two years is capital preservation. That's what I'm looking for. And none of them wanted to talk about it because I was too young to talk about that. I was too young at 36 back then, 35, 36, whatever it was. Too young. You're mid-30s. You're too young to have a discussion and come up with a formula to preserve the money that you busted your ass since you were 15 years old to make. That's what I was told. This system has been developed for one reason and one reason only. To put money in the market, to keep money in the market, to try to artificially create continuous upward pressure on the market. It is the biggest scam in the history of the world. And it's why in the end, the most focused training that these people get, right... And I, again, I know there's some good ones out there that are creative, and most of them are completely independent. They don't have some large corporate umbrella name after what they do. But what the most of them are really trained in is suicide negotiation, right? Stopping the guy from jumping off the building. They're trained in a very specific way that when you phone up and say, I don't feel real comfortable with the market now, I want to reposition things, to they'll shuffle it around, but we'll just go to safer, secure stocks, well, if the whole market takes, it doesn't matter. You know, they're trained to keep you from jumping off into, you know what, let's do cash, let's do gold. They don't get paid on gold. They don't get paid on cash. You know, even if they get charged a fee, they still, a lot of them that say, I'm just fees only, fees only, there's riffs and kickbacks. And some of them don't. I know somebody's going to write me some hate mail. I've never gotten one. Fine, fine. But there's so much brainwashing in the industry, and don't miss the importance of what I've told you today. It's designed to keep something called continuous upward pressure on the market. You see, even if companies don't do very well, okay, a company that's not making a lot of money, it's not insolvent, at least can pay its bills, but it's not really a company whose stock price should be going up. If people continue to buy the stock, even though its earnings aren't increasing, even though its individual share value is not really increasing, you'll get an artificial inflation of the stock price because of supply and demand by the investors themselves. So by creating these giant conglomerate funds and selling them to the sheeple all over the world, especially in the United States, on autopilot, and just telling them, just leave it there for the long haul. Over 10 years, the market always outperforms everything else, and all this other nonsense that's been dribbled down to a mantra that's just to a level of dogma, we keep a ton of that money in there. And that creates a lot of stability in the market until people panic. 
When people that are, especially, and the other thing that gets ignored by these people, right now, there's all this talk about the baby boomers and how they're going to affect Social Security. Ask your financial advisor how the baby boomers are going to affect your retirement account when you're not a baby boomer, when you're 35 or 45. And you say, what do you mean by that? Well, all these boomers that are hitting their 60s and 70s, right, and going to start drawing Social Security, the other thing they have is a lot of them, not all, but a lot of them have a lot of money in the market. Now, if their advisors are freaking not retards, unfortunately for most of these people, their advisors are retards. What they're saying now is even if you're going to stay, you're not going to liquidate and, and cash out and take the money out of the tax-deferred status and, and use it, even if you're going to leave it in there, we have to protect it. So now we got to go to fixed income. Now we got to go to cash. Now we got to go to things where you can't lose anymore. We've got to at least take some portion, half of your money, for God's sakes, out of the risk factor. So if all the people that are holding all this wealth, there's a lot of millionaires in that, in that demographic. If Grandma and Grandpa Jones start selling off those stock funds and buying fixed income investments or holding cash, even if they're not pulling the money out to spend, what effect does that have is that huge basketball moving through the pipe starts to liquidate? Well, it puts downward pressure on the market. Isn't that interesting? When I brought this up with a financial advisor, a guy I was talking to right when all this stuff was about to happen, his response was, well, right now we're telling them to stay in because they're, they're living longer. So I said, so you're telling me that a 70-year-old man today is holding an investment portfolio that looks something like mine? He says, well, it's a little bit more conservative, but basically yes. So they're all holding that. And then they turn on the TV and they see the Dow's down 2,000 points, 3,000 points, 4,000 points from its height. And they start to panic and they start making phone calls and they start to say, hey, liquidate it, sell it, get out. And that starts driving the market down. That's what happened in 2008 through 2009. And what's going to happen the next time around is my bigger fear. So that's why I don't like uh, you totally invested in stocks. Because it's a very singular style of investment. This whole system, this smart way to invest, as they call it, is designed to make you feel like you are well diversified when you are in a single asset class. Paper financial assets highly tied to the stock market and tax-deferred accounts. You know why they like it in tax-deferred? It's even harder for you to do. It's not harder for you to sell the stock and do something else with inside the tax-deferred account. You're less likely to. Because it's tomorrow's money, so you're less concerned about it. And this leads to what I call the autopilot system, and it's the most dangerous thing in the world that you can be doing with your money. Because it, it, it is an apathetic system. It, it allows you to be misled. It allows you to look and see, well, the market went up today, that's good for me. And you really have no idea what it means. Because is it up from yesterday, or is it up from last year, or is it up from five years ago? When, when did you put the most money in? Most Americans today have no idea in this autopilot system what's going on. But I promised you today to prove to you that, that people like Susie Orman are complete idiots. Okay, first you might notice a little bit of an audio change here. That's because I had to move into another room to accommodate the painters. Um, hopefully it will be done today. But what I'm about to read from you, read for you is uh, from the Sue's Scoop by Susie Orman. Uh, and this comes from 20, no, 17 September 2009. The important thing to, uh, to take away from this 
is that at the time that this occurred, um, the, the stock market, the Dow Jones anyway, was tra you know trading at about 11,300. It's in the uh, low 12s right now, to put this in perspective. And again, this is 2008 September. Uh, by this point, remember, this is impossible to time the markets, right? And by this time in September, I had been telling you for four months, get your money out of the stock market almost daily uh, with, the, with the original you know, launch of the show. This was Susie Orman's advice. The market had already tumbled uh, quite a bit. It had already dropped down to, again, about 11.3 from, from you know, numbers in the mid to high 12s early in the year to numbers in the 14s the year before. And I'm just reading a portion of this. You can read the whole thing if you want to, but I want you to hear this part. Stay focused on your long-term goals. If you're investing for retirement, and that is 10, 20, or 30 years off away, first, stop there a second. The person investing for retirement that's 10 years from retirement and 30 years from retirement are in such different baskets. They shouldn't even be mentioned in the same sentence, but let's just continue. Um, The smartest thing you can do is tune out what's going on right now. Yes, I know it's hard to do nothing when you see your 401k falling by 20% or more. How about 50%? Okay, moron. But sticking with your long-term strategy will allow you to have financially secure retirement. I know what you're thinking. I'll sell my stock funds now and keep my money in a safe money market account. Sure, a money market is safe, but its value isn't, gonna go, isn't going to go down. But when you do that, you put yourself at much bigger risk, and your money won't grow enough over time to build a retirement stash. Look, a money market earns less than 4% right now. Sure, I wish I could get 4% in a money market right now. And inflation is above 4%. So long term, you're building no real wealth. And don't tell me you'll just stay in the money market while the market is falling. And then we'll jump back in when things get better. This is called market timing. It sounds great, but it's impossible to pull off with any success. The problem is that you'll end up getting back in too late and aren't invested in stocks when they take off on the bull run. Being out of the market when stocks are rising pretty much guarantees that your portfolio will not grow enough to allow you a comfortable retirement. All right, I'm not going to read any more of her drivel because I will absolutely freaking snap out. All right, that was some of the most irresponsible advice ever given by anybody, especially someone in such a level of the public eye uh, at that time in history. You had to be an absolute retard living under a rock with your fingers in your ears and your feet over your eyeballs to not know that the market was going to get worse in September of 2008. You really did. You, I mean, you did. But let's just examine a little bit of fact here, shall we? Uh, Susie Orman tells us this market timing thing is just, I mean, no one can do it. You'd have to be a genius. It's impossible. Well, again... When I was saying get out, the market was higher. But let's use her time around 11,300. So here's an interesting little tidbit for you. By October uh, 20th of 2008, less than just right out a month later, the market was down. Uh, it was down a lot. It was down to, let me get this right. I don't want it because I'm you know, trashing somebody here. I don't want to get it wrong. Um, 8,500. So it went down from 11.3 to 8,500. A month after her advice was just tune out everything. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. So then, you know, the market actually got worse. And 
February it was down at like February of 2009 it was down at like 6600. So any time prior to to her advice up to her advice or back to my advice you could have sold and got out at least at 11,300. How long did you have to get back in from September 17th of 2008 the next time the market saw 11,300 was and I'm doing this in real time guys and I'm in a discombobulated state here so give me a break was yeah. let's say on or about January uh, right around the first part of January in 2010 so you had from September 2009 to get out till January 2010 you could have got back in any time in there and been better off two years see this is where the market timing myth is nothing but a, but a myth When you hear a financial advisor say, I don't believe in timing the markets, I invest for the long haul, what they're saying is, I don't know my ass from a hole in the ground and I can't get out of the way of a car speeding down the road at five and a half miles an hour when I have a hundred yards to get out of the way. I'm going to stand there and be run over by a car doing five miles an hour. That's exactly what happened in the market this time. Real market timing, the trading, the traders type of timing is where you're going to be in today, out tomorrow, in today, out tomorrow, in it, buy high, sell, you know, buy low, sell high, you know, short the stocks when they're up and, 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 and cash out on your short positions when they're down. That's trading. That's market timing. All right. Stepping out of the way of a freight train doing five miles an hour is not market timing. It's freaking common sense. And this is why I have no respect for the financial advisory industry anymore. None. And again, I'll say it one more time just so people understand me. I know there's some of you guys out there that know what you're doing and you're good. But I'm going to tell you this. Again, if you did not move your, your clients into safe, secure positions in 2008, you should take your license and whatever credentials you have, you should put them in a great big pile, toss a little bit of kerosene on them, light them on fire, and go find a different profession Or admit that you were wrong and learn to do this in the future because if you don't do one of those two things, you are committing a sin against humanity. Because you're advising people to do things with their money that is very, very bad for their money. And this is what's going on out there. And I want people to understand this. And I don't, you know what, I'm not even going to say there's some of them that are good anymore because anybody that's offended still, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. You have no business telling people how to invest their money. I also want to talk about gold and silver a little bit right now. Now, I've said almost since day one that I believe in going into a position with your wealth of 5% to 10% of your investment into gold and silver as insurance. And I think there's a lot of people out there spreading a lot of you know bad information about gold and silver on both sides. I think there's the people out there saying it's the only safe place for your money. Uh, and, and if you are 100% in gold, it's as dumb as being 100% in the market, and it's as dumb as being 100% in cash. It really is. Each way, there's something that could happen in the economy that could literally break your legs. You've, you've left security, you've left stability when you go 100% into anything. But the typical objection, and, and Mike Gazer, who I love, gave this objection on my show just about a month ago. What they'll say is, well, if you hold gold, and let's say gold was trading at at $1,000 an ounce. I know it's up around $1,500, $1,400, something like that right now. It doesn't really matter. Let's use $1,000 for a round number. And a year later, gold is at $3,000, right? It triples in value. What they'll tell you is, well, if gold does that, that means that it's an inflationary move. 
so that the thousand dollars worth of gold only buys the same thing that that, that it at three thousand dollars that it bought at a thousand dollars. In other words, if you wanted to buy a big screen TV, the most badass big screen TV you could find, and you were willing to spend a thousand bucks on it uh, a few years ago. And now gold goes up to $3,000. Now, the, the TV you bought three years ago, obviously, is old technology, but the equivalent today, the newest, the best, the thing that was $1,000 three years ago, uh, now due to inflation is $3,000. So your gold's value is the same. And they look at that and they say, well, see, there's no growth there. Um, duh, that's the point. That's the entire point. Is the money devalues... The gold and the silver retain value. This is not a 100% airtight formula. It's why I'm conservative with my advice on gold and silver. Now, let me explain a few things that I think might make my advice seem a little less conservative for some that think it's way too conservative. Total wealth. If you own a $200,000 house and you own it, um, you have $200,000 in wealth. There should be $20,000 of gold or silver to match that. If you have a $200,000 house and you have $100,000 in equity and you have $100,000 of wealth in your home, extractable equity by selling it if you choose to do so. So you should have $10,000 of equivalent gold or silver as a counterbalance to that asset. So when I say your total wealth, I am not just talking about your 401k balance and your emergency fund. If that makes things maybe a little more palatable, that think people that think I'm being a little too conservative, I'll also tell you this. Your plan is the most important thing. I always tell you that about all levels of survival and disaster planning. And I know we're talking about financial stuff today. You might think this doesn't sound like survivalism. It absolutely is. And if you don't think that, um, I, you could try two experiments for me this month, for the rest of this month. We're almost halfway through it. Try living without electricity for two weeks. Okay, try that. And then, it, it, conversely, try living without money for two weeks. And see which one's more difficult. When the people start calling you because you didn't pay your bills. And I think you could live without electricity a lot longer than you could live without money in our modern society. And remember, survivalism is about solidifying your position in life in such a way that when things do go wrong, you're able to maintain your life in as best of quality you can for yourself based on your own standards. That's my version of survival. It's not just waking up breathing tomorrow. We can go down in a hole in the ground and, and hide in a bomb shelter and stay alive. But what quality of life is there? The only time we're going in that bomb shelter is if the bombs are going off. And up until then, that's a last-ditch effort. We have to focus on surviving in the modern era with adaptation to the things that come our way. And planning for our own retirement, yes, is part of that. But gold and silver are financial insurance in my view. I'm not looking for them to be high return investments. Because one thing the anti-gold people are right about, if you buy gold at $1,000 and t t 10 years later, let's say a year later it's worth ten, that $10,000 is pretty much useless money. You don't, At that point you just want to keep holding the gold. We're holding gold and silver in case we have large-scale inflation, as an insurance policy, and we're holding it as a, as a larger umbrella insurance policy in case we have a complete rebasing of the currency. Because when that happens, there's always a huge inflationary pull in that currency rebasement to pay off old debt. So if I'm going to make the new dollar and use it to pay off the old dollar, I'm going to devalue, I'm going to reverse split is the way they'll do it. So to understand what I mean by that, if we have a stock, and the stock's really in trouble, you know, it's, it's down to like 50 cents a share, And I need it to be over a dollar a share. 
I absolutely to keep it listed on the on the stock exchange without going to the what they call the over the counter. What I might do is a reverse split. This is a very bad thing for the investor. So today you're holding a hundred shares, and it's going down the crapper, and worth five hundred bucks. So tomorrow I do a five for one reverse split. So now instead of holding, uh, you know, uh, what did I say you had there? Five hundred shares at. at uh, What did I say you had? Not, I'm, I'm sorry, folks. I'm discombobulated. You have 100 shares at 50 cents, 500 bucks, and I do a five for one reverse split. You now have 20 shares at two dollars and fifty cents a share. You have the same money, the same 500 dollars, but you have less shares. And when you do that with a currency during a rebasement, which means basically change the money, and this has happened again. For those of you that think like this is an unusual event. Since 1913 being the first time, up till today, there's been five changes to the U.S. currency where this type of thing has occurred. And the stuff is done backdoor deals with complex mathematics that you never understand or are privy to. So if I do that with money, now my new money is more powerful right, than the old money. So now I go pay off the debts denominated in dollars of yesterday with money denominated in dollars of today. But where it comes, you know, what hurts is the person holding the money lost. The person creating the money, the Federal Reserve, the elite banking layer, layer, the government, they all profit from this. It's a hidden tax. That's part of why we hold gold and silver, so that if that occurs and we decide we need money in the new economy, we can liquidate the gold and silver for the new money. And the other thing about gold and silver, and this is something that financial advisors who think so one-dimensionally will never understand. If you hold, let's say, five ounces of gold for every member of your family, Right, if you have enough money to do this, and this doesn't work for everybody. If you have 10 kids, that's a lot of money in gold. But if you have a family of four or less, and you hold somewhere between, you know, if you're an individual, five ounces. If you're a family of four, 20 ounces of gold. And anything ever really goes wrong in your life, for you have to leave the country. That's a lot of wealth in a very small package that can be turned into a currency anywhere in the world. That's resiliency, that's redundancy, that's self-reliance. That's why it's part of what we do. I also think that one thing we have to get America's mind out of is investing 100% of their long-term investments in tax-deferred accounts. It sounds so good, and you're, again, these people are trained to teach you this. This is exactly what they're trained to teach you. Oh, well, you don't want the government to get this money, so if you put it in here, the government won't get it. And there's a place for this. There really is a place for this uh, this type of mentality of tax deferral. But again, eggs basket one. I mean, that's that's just the, the the basic formula you need to always be asking yourself: Is there any way in which I put all of my eggs into a single basket, even if it has a lot of little baskets inside it? So a perfect example of this is even if I have an enlightened financial advisor, if I'm holding some hedge funds, I'm holding some typical mutual funds, I'm holding some individual stocks, I'm holding some municipal bonds, I'm holding some corporate bonds. I, hell, I've got an IRA instead of a 401k where I have more flexibility. I'm holding some real estate, right? I'm holding a real estate trust. I mean, I've got some diversity going on, even. Even you know me just having to yield a little bit and admit, even though it's all kind of paper assets at this point, this paper. But some of the papers gold backed, some of the papers real estate backed. I I, I got to admit there's some diversity there. But since you've encapsulated it all into an IRA, now it's in the IRA basket. So even though you got diversity in there, you, now you've, you've you're lacking options. If you want your money, you either have to borrow it from yourself with a very short time to repay it without penalty. Or you have to liquidate some portion of it and pay a penalty on it. 
So in one basket. I also, I really want you guys to understand the long-term risk to your 401ks and IRAs right now. The government's greedy hand is very, very, is, is turning a very, very dark shade of green. With it, you know, that greedy envy green color. And, and, and just hovering around all of these tax deferred accounts. This is what the government's case is going to be eventually. The only reason you have all that money is because we set up a subsidy for you to put that money in there. That you owe back your government for giving you this vehicle, and we need to take care of you. We've we've seen that capitalism can fail. We've seen that the markets can fail. So we want to make sure that we safeguard your retirement. We don't want you to lose that four hundred thousand, or eight hundred thousand, or one hundred thousand, or two point five million dollars. You know, depending on who you are, how much you've made, how old you are, that's in that account. So what they're talking about doing, and I mean, this is, this is it's time to go to Washington and pull people out of their seats and hang them from the, the, the streetlights if they do this. But they might. They're talking about saying, oh, Mr. Smith, you have a million dollars in your 401k. Well done, Mr. Smith. Well done. Well done. Here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to take 250000 of your, your, your million, and we're going to put it into government bonds. And they're going to pay you a guaranteed check until you die. It's going to be like an annuity backed by the federal government. Isn't that great? You say, but it's my money you're taking away. I say, no, 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 we're not taking it away. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're going to pay you. We're going to give you an interest rate of 5% on your 250. We're going to send you a check every single month to make sure you can get by. Because we're cutting Social Security. Eventually, it's going to go bankrupt, so we have to do something for you. You say, but that's my money. I put it in there. And I say, but you didn't pay tax on that money. And you turn around and say, wait a minute. Mine's a Roth. I did pay tax on the money. You didn't pay tax on the interest. See, as long as the government has visibility into your wealth and has done something for you in the generation of that wealth, in their sick, twisted minds, they have the right to come back and change the agreement because you owe them. Let Frame this for you in a way that you'll understand. Right now, Americans are making their final tribute for 2010 to the greatest gangster that ever existed. His name is Ira Ramon Sancia. His initials are IRS. Okay? When you have a mobster come to you and say, look, I'm going to do you a favor, do you not know that at some point in the future, there's going to be a counterpoint to that favor? I've done you a favor. I've taken care of you. Now I need you to do something for me. Right? Every mob movie you've ever seen has got that component in it. Why? Because it's real. It's how it works. Right? There were people, even when I was growing up, that, you know, we knew it had certain roots and all that. Which, you know, my dad would say, you never take a favor from that guy. Don't ever take a favor from him because it's going to come back. Well, government is the biggest gangster on the planet. So when government does anything that it sees as a favor, it's going to come back and ask for something. And that's what it's going to come back and ask for. Will they be successful with it? Am I screaming, take all your money out of your, return, your deferred accounts? Am I screaming, you know, stop putting any money in there at all right now? No. I'm just saying that since that's a risk, why put 100% into that basket? So I believe that when you're saving money for your retirement, if you want to call it retirement money, which is any money that you're not going to spend for the next 10 years, half Tax deferred, half non-tax deferred. Half of it should remain liquid, and you can look at doing things with it that are not necessarily investments that are taxable in the first place, like getting a tax subsidy. So 
some people would say, well, if I take this $25,000 and I'll put it into the bank and then it'll give me some interest. It'll give you like, you know, less than 1% right now or I can buy a bond with it or I can put it in the stock market. And I'd say, but if you took that $25,000 and you put in the very best by shopping around, doing some of the installation yourself, doing everything you can, you put in the very best solar array with battery backup redundancy that you can for $25,000 that you've just invested your money. You will never pay tax on it again. If they do try to tax the sun, we are going, I'm, I'm going. So anybody that says, well, Jack, one day they might tax your solar inputs to your home. That happens. All bets are off. They've gone too far. I'm going to Washington. And I'm not going with a smile on my face. All right? I'm not paying that bill. There's a point at which we have to say no more. And I think that's no more. So that's a place I want to go. So you build that. And that produces electricity for you for 25 or more years. And they know they have the life cycles of the systems and things, you know, eventually wear out and, you know, panels have a 20 year life cycle or whatever. But I know a lot of people that have gotten those 20 year old panels, put them on their house and they still work. They just maybe don't have the efficiencies of a new panel or the efficiencies they did when they first came out. So we can add to the array. My point is now the government's offered me a subsidy and a tax rebate to spend my own money on something I get to keep for the long haul. So that solar array or that wind generator or anything else that provides one of my five survival needs for me long term, I consider an investment. My home is an investment, not in the way that most financial advisors say, okay, it's your largest asset and it appreciates in value and real estate historically has a strong track record like the stock market and, you know, it's okay to have that big mortgage and owe $300,000 on that house because at some point in the future, even if you still owe 300 because you do an interest only loan, you'd probably sell it for 400,000 and make a 25% return. That's not how I mean it. Because as we've seen, property values don't always go up. But if we live in property that's affordable, if we pay it off early, if we pay it off even on time, but we do it in such a way that the payments are no financial burden to us, the structure itself is the asset because we have to live somewhere. So it's not about what number I put on the balance sheet for it. It's about what does it provide for me. So I consider anything that's going to provide me with food, shelter, water, energy, or security part of my investment portfolio, and here's why. What I'm going to spend most of my retirement money on is going to be to provide myself with food, shelter, water, energy, and security. You know, a lot of older people, what do they do? They move to a gated community. Why? For the security, for the safety. When you're old, do you still not eat every day? Maybe you eat a little differently. Maybe you eat a little less. But last time I checked, most 80-year-olds had three meals a day, uh, just as, as most people that are 20 have three meals a day. So if I can put food production into a system in any way, shape, or form that I can do that to guarantee myself some sort of an input of sustenance, it's an investment. I, I, I don't know if you've been to many people's homes that are in their 80s or 90s in those twilight years of life, but yet generally when you go into one and you flip a switch, a light bulb comes on, it costs money to run that switch. And it's one of the things that old people freak out the most about. I hate to go to my father-in-law's home. Do you know why? In the winter, it's freaking freezing cold. And in the summer, you walk in and you just start sweating. And it's dark. Why? He's worried about his electric bill. Now, the guy actually is fine. fine. Why don't you help him out, Jack? Because he doesn't need it. right? He doesn't need it. He has a, a house payment of $200 because he bought a long time ago and his house is an investment. See, that investment's paying off. He has Social Security. He has his own retirement savings. But he's in a mentality of scarcity. 
And I can't blame him. He, he, he grew up and went right through the heart of World War II and saw some of the worst things that humanity's ever seen. So I can understand, you know, you're missing that in Europe, right? In Holland. And, and, and witnessed the Nazi invasion. His family was part of the resistance movement. I mean, so I can understand seeing scarcity. But I'm telling you, I can't tell you how many senior citizens' homes that I want no part of because the thermostat in the summertime is set on like 81 degrees. And in the winter, it's set down on like 62. And they claim, I like it that way. Well, it's not possible. It's not possible that you like 62 and 82 as a temperature. You like one or the other for your, your inside temperatures. Why are they doing that to save money on one of their biggest expenses, which is what? Energy, which if they had purchased it 20 years ago, they would be offsetting the cost of that today. And they would, see? You see how investments start to change as soon as you open your mind beyond paper? And beyond paper and gold, for God's sakes. The, the problem with most of the gold bugs is they believe that there's only two investments. There's gold and there's paper. And maybe real estate, maybe, I don't know. Right? That's the, they don't understand that you got to think beyond all of these things the way that we do in uh, in the modern survival movement. I, I think we have to really ask ourselves what is an investment supposed to do for me if I'm gonna if I'm gonna change my financial IQ if I'm gonna do more than just learn financial terms. By the way, I think that every person listening to me once a day you should get a financial dictionary, look up a word you don't know, learn the definition of it, and actually learn it. I don't mean memorize it. I mean learn it. I mean have a practical understanding of what it does. Just one a day. And, and you'll be blown away at how much more you'll know in a year or two. Uh, how much you'll be able to do for yourself. But when I talk about financial IQ, I'm not really just talking about that. right? Because there's a lot of stuff I know about in the financial industries, like trading options and stuff. And, and I can explain it very well. I've done it on the show before. I think I can explain it better than most people that are experts in it. Because the problem with a lot of experts is they understand it so well uh, and they understand it in such a complicated level, they can't break it down to where you can understand it. And I don't even consider those people experts. I consider them maybe subject matter experts, but a true expert can actually explain something in a way that you'll understand it. That's what makes a person an expert teacher anyway. So I can explain these options and things like that at that level. But I don't go play in them because they're risky business. So when I talk about financial IQ, I'm talking about more about understanding yourself and your financial IQ for your life and what you want. Because the problem with financial advisors is they believe that everybody wants the same thing. Now they go through the pantomime. Tell me about your hopes and dreams, John and Debbie. Oh, and where would you like to live when you get older? And uh, right now you are have an income of $120,000 for the household. That breaks down to $10,000 a month. You think that you'll spend less when you're retired, but the reality is you're going to spend more. John, do you work and how many hours a week? 50 hours a week. See, that's 50 hours a week you're at work. When you're at work, are you spending money? No, see, you're earning money. Now, now you know, And the same conversation with the wife. But when you're retired... That's 50 hours a week. You're not working 40 hours. That's 90 more hours to do the things you love. Now, when you're doing the things that you love, do you generally spend some money? Well, yeah, okay. Well, see, you're going to need more money at retirement. So you're going to have to save at least X dollars a month to have an income of Y. So that you can see it's the same formula. 
It's the same for it's a one size fits all formula for everybody. When do you think you're going to die? Here's how much money you need. Here's what we think we can count on from for Social Security. Here's if there's still a pension left around, what we might get out of that. Here's the third leg of the stool. This is our individual investments, and we're going to put all that together, and we're going to figure out what you need, and then we're going to give you a number to invest in and a portfolio. To, see. But when you start to expand your financial IQ for yourself, you start to say to yourself, hey, wait a minute, self. Am I happy with my life the way that it is? No. Okay. So what do I actually want? This is where we get into prepping as a retirement plan. We start to try to build resiliency around the things and, 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 and the places that make us actually happy people, that are the place we actually want to be. And we have to ask ourselves a very fundamental question that most people will never ask because it sounds like it's the answer is too simple. And the reality is the answer is extremely complicated because it's a different answer for you than it is for me. And that question is, what is an investment really supposed to do for you? See, now the simple answer, the one most people would give is, provide me a return. If I put a thousand in, more than a thousand should come out. As long as that happens, the investment's successful. Well, I mean, let's look at it even from a financial advisor's viewpoint if they're doing their job. If I invest $1,000 for five years and I earn 4% interest over five years, um, you would say that that would be basically, it would be more than a 20% total return because the interest compounds annually. But it would be a successful investment. Maybe not an extremely successful investment, but it was successful. But if we had periods of extreme inflation during that period, And uh, inflation averaged 10% a year. I've effectively had a 6% loss. So it's not just a return. It's a total return. It's how much of a return does it give me relative to the prior buying strength of the investment. If I'm purely financial. So that we already start to like pick it apart and go, well, it's not as simple as a return. Put 1000 in, get 2000 out. Is that a good investment? It depends. How long did it take? What could have similar investments done for you? What's the effect of inflation on the investment? What did not having, if it, if it was tied up for two years, you just couldn't get it. You know, they would have cut your arm off if you tried to get it. And two years later, your thousands were two, it's doubled. But did you need that thousand dollars in that period? Did you go late on a debt? Did that debt rack up finance charges? And that you could have used that money to avoid? And then we have to take the loss and, and subtract it out of the game. Maybe not on our tax paperwork, because it doesn't work that way, unless we're running a business, right? But us internally, we know the money's gone. That if we lost $600, we could have saved with the $1,000. We didn't gain $1,000, we gained, gained $400. And if there was inflation that was greater than the $400, we're at a complete loss, even though the investment looks like it doubled in two years. Now, that's severe inflation. It's not the most likely thing in the world, but it is kind of likely long-term. It's kind of likely in the next 10 to 15 years, man, we're going in some... This is not the same time that it used to be. So now the whole concept of just being a simple return or a profitable tool is just starting to be deconstructed, but now let's really deconstruct it. Let's deconstruct it as individuals and say, what's an investment supposed to do for me? For me. So now it is that you know hope and dream meeting, but it's with yourself instead of your advisor who's just designed to put you into a formula. Well, for me, what an investment is supposed to do is the number one thing I want out of my investments is liberty. 
If I can put something somewhere and it liberates me from something so that I don't have to pay for it ever again, it's a good investment. I don't care if it takes 15 years to pay itself off. I could have put the money into an IRA for 15 years, had the interest on it, and then I'm going to have to go back and buy the same damn system of dependence again. Because most of us, we're going to buy our five survival needs throughout our entire life a la carte. We pay our electric bill monthly. We pay our gas bill weekly. We pay our food bill weekly. You see how that works. So all we're doing with the investment and hoping to get the return is deferring the expenditure and hoping the growth is sufficient to make the expenditure in the future. Where I'm saying some of these things we can lock in the expenditure today And we know from past performance, just like the slob story or the, 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 the what is it, the, the spin your advisor gives you, well, past performance is no guarantee of future results, but history has shown it to be a strong indicator. That one, right? Well, the history that's a strong indicator is shit gets more expensive in America. That's how it works. Your money becomes, and it, it doesn't really. That's the big scam. Prices don't go up in general. The value of money goes down. And if you look at what you could have bought with one American dollar, with a few blips from some crises that were created, by the way, from about 1800 to 1900, it almost didn't change at all. It's like a flat line. It looks like a guy dying on the operating table with a few blips in it of hope. And those hope are actually bad things in that line. But if you look at the value of a dollar from 1913 today, it goes down like a rock. And prices correspondingly look like they go up. So it's not that tomorrow your dollar doesn't buy it, the price of an item goes, goes up, the value of your dollar is going down. That's what's really happening. So we can combat that not just by putting the money at risk and not just by tying the money up and not being able to do anything with the money. We can combat that by purchasing today what we'll use tomorrow at today's prices. And to me, that's a much more creative way to invest. So what do I put in your investments? If you're building an awesome orchard that's going to produce fruit and nuts for you for long enough that when you die your kids are going to inherit it, that's an investment, right? There's a there's a commercial out right now for it's for Ameriprise or American Express or somebody like that. It's like a cartoon version of the guy talking and the guy goes, "I don't know, it's supposed to be some magic number or something." And then then my advisor wants to talk to me about a vineyard. A vineyard? Really? Just tell me what I need to do so I can retire happy. Right? Well, actually, see, as stupid as the vineyard can be, when people talk about it for the dream speech, the vineyard might be a better investment than the mutual fund. I want you to really think about that. Planting a few dozen grapes on trellises and taking good care of them for five to ten years to get them into maximum production to provide either food or you know juice for wine may be a much better investment. Who says a vineyard has to be a thousand acres in Southern California? If what I want to do is make sure that I can have some table grapes and a little bit of table wine in my future, and I make that investment today, how many times does it pay itself off over 30 or 40 years? What is a bunch of grapes going to cost at Kroger supermarkets, assuming they're still around in 20 years versus today? How does my return of investment on that grapevine look? In 20 years. What it can't even be replaced for another 20 years. Because a 20-year-old mature grapevine does things that a 5-year-old grapevine just can't. 
There's, there, there, there is such a difference when we begin to deconstruct things and ask that. And that's what I want you to do. I don't want you to just say, okay, Jack told me not to throw money in a 401k anymore at all. Jack said not to buy stocks anymore at all. Jack said, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I want you to start looking at the way you're cutting your investments up very, very critically. And I want you to make some very key decisions for yourself about what you really want in your future. And I want you to realize that if you don't make a million dollars a year, then most of the financial advisors that are available to you suck. And you're probably better off taking control of this stuff and doing it on your own. If you went out and picked five well-rated funds, one small cap, one mid cap, one growth in income, right? One index matching and one bond fund, and picked any way you wanted to to slice that up, and stuck your money into to, to any kind of a deferred account that you wanted for yourself, you're going to do just as good as any of them are going to do, because in the end, that's what they're going to do. In the end, for all the talk, that's what they're going to do. The biggest myth I want to dispel for you, though, as I wrap up today, and it's so important that you understand this one. I can't tell you how many advisors I've heard say, well, I really like this Janus fund, or I like this Templeton fund, or whatever. And they have this manager, and he really knows what he's doing. And they even send people to the companies to work there, under the table, to, to, to research and actually see what's going on before they choose these companies. And I've heard sh- shit just like that. So instead of you having to monitor this and know what stocks to sell and what stocks to buy, they're going to do it for you. So you have this vision that somewhere in a great big building in New York City with a big beautiful desk and these beautiful walls and MBA certificates and Series 6, Series 7, all the stuff, you know, CFA, you know, Charter Financial Advisor certifications. He's got frames all around the wall. Here's this guy that runs this fund. And he sits there and he fires up his computer and he goes, okay, I got $4 billion under management. Got to take care of my people today. What stocks am I going to buy and sell today? Right? Does the trading for you. What stuff am I going to hold? What stuff am I going to liquidate? How's the market going to do in the next six months? We need to reposition to deal with bullshit. If you buy a small cap fund, under current regulations, that fund manager can know the entire small cap sector is about to tank. And the only thing he can change is which small cap stocks he's holding. He can only hold a very small portion in cash. He can't sell off the stocks. He's got to keep it allocated into that market segment. If you buy an index matching fund, okay, they have to hold the primary stocks in the index. That's the only thing they can hold. Even gold, if you buy a gold ETF, they have to hold gold. Can't decide gold's going to crash, let's sell it. Right? And with an ETF, you probably wouldn't want that. But I'm trying to make a point for you. This illusion that some super sharp team is managing your individual money is just that. It's an illusion. It's total bullshit. It's the number one thing they use to sell you the bullshit investment dream. And I'm saying enough. I'm saying when you turn the TV on and you hear any of these people talking about how to invest your money, 99% of the time the best thing you can do is turn them off. They don't know their ass from a hole in the ground. People like Susie Orman are an atrocity for America. The same person that gave you the advice I read earlier has a new book out called The New American Dream that just says basically now, with everything that's happened, you just have to accept the fact that you're going to be working till you're 70. So her advice two and a half years ago, don't worry about it, don't pay attention to it, it'll be fine, think about the long term, has become the longer term. Instead of 65, not 70. That's a baseline.
Great. Thank you. I appreciate you helping me out that way, Susie. Appreciate you helping out America that way. And it might seem like I'm kicking her in the head more than the other people that do the same thing. She's the one that's always there and always annoying me. But they're all the same. That's my point. It's all the same. I guarantee you right now, if you pick the four uh, best-known uh, investment advisory companies in your area, you know, let's say Eddie Jones, uh, let's say Ameriprise Financial, let's say American Express, and I don't know, one more, right? That have the typical financial advice. If you go to a business mixer, like at a, uh, you know, like a, um, what do you call it, like a chamber of commerce meeting, you kick a table, like six real estate agents come out from underneath there, like four financial advisors, that kind of financial advisor, if you call up one from each of those companies and you sit down with them and you even give them different stories, like one story is that you want to retire to the coast of Maine. The other story is you want to live in your house for the rest of your life. Uh, another story is that you want to... Uh, expatriate and move to Costa Rica and the other story is you're not really sure yet four different people four different stories at your age in life you're going to get four portfolios that are almost identical to each other and my point is if that's going to be the case why do you need them and how can you trust their advice the one person that you can actually trust in this world isn't me it isn't because I like any other person in the end I'm going to take care of myself and I'm going to take care of my family, right? Doesn't mean I'm going to deceive you. It doesn't mean that I'm going to do what's, you know, something malicious to you. But in the end, there's a self-preservation instinct in all human beings. It takes a lot of guts to admit it, you know, when you run a business. Hey, my preservation is the most important thing to me, but it is. And I want you to ask yourself, what's the most important thing to you? You and your family, right? And then maybe your community. But you and your family, that's first. So, when it comes to advice for you and your community, you can take information from people like me and information from even Susie Orman. A blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while. There's some advice in there that's solid. If there wasn't, they couldn't build a marketing package around her and her, her ridiculously colored leather suits and, and her, her bob haircut. There has to be some actual useful stuff in there to make any of the, the spin work. But in the end, you have to pick and choose what you what you want. And you have to decide. I get emails all the time. Well, I've got the $25,000. Should I put the solar array in? I don't know. I don't know. How much total money do you have? How old are you? Do you own the house? You know, what's your current electric bill? If your current electric bill is like $11 because you use like three light bulbs and, and a gas stove, um, you should probably put a solar array in. It probably shouldn't cost you $25,000. It, it's all situationally and individually dependent. And advisors, instead of coming back to you with a sheet of paper, should be helping you understand everything and getting you to pick for yourself. You'd do better. But that's not solid sales technique. That's the biggest thing. Understand that. That's what these guys are. They're salespeople. They are not advisors. They're salespeople. And especially the ones that come to your place of employment and give generic advice to 50 people sitting in a break room. How in the hell can that advice apply to a guy working on the line, bolting a fender on a car, equally to the person that works in the accounting office with an MBA making four times the salary of the guy that's bolting the fender on. How can the advice pertain to the person making 1.5% or 1.5 times minimum wage that sweeps the floors at night as it does to the person that's a highly skilled salesperson that's bringing home $150,000 a year? 
If you're young, invest aggressively, invest for the long haul, put the most amount you can in. Your employer matches 5%, so at least do that. You should be doing 10%. Pick these funds. I mean, come on. Come on. America, wake up. Think for yourselves. Change what investment means and determine what investment means for yourself. I know I was over, you know, kind of a little bit all over the place today. I'm sorry. Again, I've got the painters in the house still. I, I'm sorry if I sound like I'm belly aching about that, but I had to move to a different room. Um, it, this is tough. My desk is gone. I'm, I'm down on my laptop. But I want to keep bringing the show up for you guys. I'm going to try to do one again tomorrow. There'll definitely be one Monday. I'm going to record one on Sunday, and that should be a really good show because nobody will be here to bother me Sunday. So I can record that preloaded for Monday. I'll be driving up to Arkansas next week. And Tuesday... Tuesday of next week, you should hear me get on the air and say, Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast coming to you today from Hot Springs, Arkansas. And hopefully I'll be in a lighter and better mood then. we got a lot of great stuff coming, folks. Once we get this move done, I'm going to go back to doing some interviews. I'm going to bring in three or four great guests a month. That'll bring some variety to the show. I always want to hear from you. Tell me what you want to hear. Tell me the shows that you want me to do. Tell me if you want more like what I've done today. Tell me if you hate it today. I'm not going to get upset unless you're insulting. Uh, I mean, that's about the only way that I ever get up upset with anybody when they're insulting me. I don't like this. Well, you know, I don't like blue. I don't like green. I mean, that's, that's the nature of things. But what I try to do is to focus on things that the largest amount of the audience wants me to focus on at any given time. And as long as those things help you build a better life. So keep letting me know what you want and I'll keep trying to help you do just that. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you build that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares